Welcome to Deconstructed, the podcast of the Grand Valley Construction Association. I'm your host, Jeff McIntyre. We talk with construction industry leaders to break down the issues affecting our businesses. The objective is to understand them better and move towards building a stronger and more collaborative construction industry here at home and across Canada. Today's guest on Deconstructed Podcast is Io Owodemi, and um, I'm a big fan. I'm telling you this right now, and I'm going to set you up on a pedestal <laughs> and you're, you're going to be able to live with yourself for the balance of the day. I've heard, <laughs> I've, I've heard a lot of people speak over the years, and I'm talking about Robert Kennedy Jr. before he was in, got insane, <laughs> Bill Clinton, Bruce Mao. In all those situations, they spoke, and I didn't want the discussion to end. Mm. So I met you last week, and when you were talking, I was I, I was on the edge of my seat, mm. and I was so excited to have this discussion with you and further conversation. So, Io, welcome to Deconstructed Podcast. All right, you really did set up on the pedestal. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> no, it's a great pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. So you're a very complex individual. I've been, uh, literally, you were you were a stranger to me, other than knowing that you. Uh, I'm a, I live in the city of Kitchener. You're, you're a Kitchener counselor. I'd seen you, but I, I didn't really understand you. I did a bit of research, um, and we'll talk about that today. You know, immigrant to Canada, and that's really what we're going to focus on here is that pathway. And it's not as rosy as it appears. So we're going to get into some stuff here. We're going to turn over some rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a professor. You're a counselor. You're an author. I have your book, The Qualities of an Inclusive Leader, The Immigrant View. Um, and I bought this and I haven't been able to put it down. I read it and I re- remarked it and read it. So it's fantastic. But more importantly, I'm, I'm setting you up again here, my friend. You're a design thinker and you understand inclusive leadership. So why don't we start with the journey, kind of the impetus for not everything that's going on right now, but how this all started and how you become a subject matter expert on the immigrant's view to employment. And then we'll get into what, you know, what's wrong with it and what would better look like from a design thinking standpoint. Thanks for having me. Uh, interestingly, you know, many times they say we connect the, the dots backwards. Um, uh, over, I would say, 13 years ago, I met a, an individual who uh, I went for a life coaching certification training. Um, and prior to that, I was on radio for about four years, four years or so. I hated my time on radio. Um, I was like the Mike Farwell in Lagos. You know, I, had, I was on the morning show and I did that for quite some time. And I, I loved it. It was talk show, um, but I hated the money and the salary. So I think what happened over a period of time was I didn't realize it, but Radio was helping me with my communication skills and my eloquence. By the time I took this life coaching certification, it really helped me to start thinking in systems. And what they taught us was, you know, success is predictable. Uh, Previous performance can predict future performance. Once you study, you pay attention to behaviors. And I started to learn models uh, in those those sessions uh, as well. So now fast forward in 2016, I move over to Canada and I go through this tough integration process. And just like many people, there's always that question of why me? I think now I'm thinking, why not me? <laughs> you know, who else should have gone uh, through that? But I had a tough integration, uh, integrate, um, integrating process. 
was fired from two jobs within a short period of time, almost got fired from a third job, if not for uh, an inclusive leader who really was courageous and spoke and challenged me uh, on certain things. Uh, And looking back, I started to realize that there are patterns to some of these things. And there are things that organizations can do better. And more important, there are things that I could also do better. So the next book I'm working on, I'm actually going to be talking to the immigrants. This book was focused on the organizations just to say, we can do this integrating uh, process a lot better. You can harness talent better. You can maximize potential better. And you can gain so many, uh, whether it's your profit line, um, whether it is different payments to your shareholders, whatever it is that you're looking for, you have the missing pieces right here in this region or wherever you are. We're just not seeing it and we're just not tapping into it. And I think all the things that have happened to me and my learnings from life it really help to be able to communicate it well. I think others have tried to communicate it, but I think what I've been able to do is turn it into models find ways to speak about it, um, find relevant stories uh, to be able to share with people and share it in a way that is not scary, that is not demeaning, that doesn't put people down, but more so inspires people to say, okay, you know what, I want to take action. So I think that's how it's worked out. I learned a lot in a 15-minute talk. First, First thing I learned, there's basically three access ways that people become immigrate to Canada mm-hmm. and they're, they're very different pathways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we all assume that it is the refugee process. Right. And that fear is based, you know, and, and, and all your concerns are usually based from the unknown. So can you educate me again <laughs> and everybody listening about those three pathways, and and the numbers are really interesting, like the percentages, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we we all think it's it's uh, immigrant, you know, it's uh, refugees. It's it's not. So what what are the three pathways into uh, into Canada? Yeah, there's the family category, and that comes whether through marriage, through connection, um, uh, that type of thing, or your mother or your father coming in. Um, there is there is the caregiver, which I don't even focus on for the book. It's more someone coming to help uh, in the household or whatever. Um, however, yeah. there is the refugee that people know of. But there is also the economic category, which right now is 58% of immigrants that are coming in. And it's going to be projected to be about 60% um, by 2025, I believe. So at the end of the day, who are these economic ad- – so think about it. That's the largest number of immigrants that are coming in in comparison to decades ago uh, right. in Canada where it was not that large of a number. Uh, Daniel uh, Bernhard, who is the CEO of – it's called the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. I was watching one video of his online, and I thought it was just phenomenal where he shared – the immigrants that are coming in today in Canada are different from the immigrants that were coming in a generation earlier. Right. And, and I can give you examples of people that I know. So I'm not even just talking about people I read, people that I know that are close to me, that were my friends in Nigeria. These individuals owned investment properties. Uh, one individual is uh, was the former CIO uh, of, um, of a well-known beverage company that is also here in Canada. 
My wife right. worked at PwC in Nigeria before coming over to Canada, and she worked on multiple projects and led that over in Nigeria. I just got a call from someone that works in KPMG in Nigeria that just moved here just last week, and the caliber is not different. So you have individuals right. that are extremely smart, that are very well educated. You had to have a, a lot of money, at least about 20000 uh, From the data that I read back in, I think it was 2018, the average Canadian has an average of 800 or something dollars in their bank accounts. That was in 2018. I don't know what the new number is um, at this point post-COVID, but that was pre-COVID. But these individuals had to have significant amount of money before they could even come into the country. Um, and then you, 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 you're just brave, brave enough to leave everything, start a new life in a place that you probably only know one person or two people, or you just read about it online. So it's a very different perspective from what most people think, I believe. And I'm going to reiterate again, I'm going to say that. So my great, sorry, my grandfather and my father came over from Scotland mm. and they connected with the trades, which was often the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm second generation Canadian, but my grandfather went into the trades and he, he aligned with people from Scotland and they were notorious for working in this or whether there was a Portuguese group that were notorious for working in, you know, in Brooklyn mm -hmm. or, or Italians for doing, uh, you know, plaster and they found their, their, their group. And that's, that's, and then from that, they obviously came over with the intent of giving their children a, a better world. And as a result of that, my father, you know, started in the trades, but became the captain in the fire department mm. was retired from doing so. Mm. But my grandfather, you know, if he, if English wasn't his first language because he's from Scotland, there's a lot of tradespeople I know that have lived their whole life, worked for 40 years in Canada and still don't speak English, but because they had a, you know, a, a comfortable place to go. Yeah. But the comment on all that was, and what I found a fascinating in the discussion was, these are the cream of the crop. Yeah. These are, these are people that, that are educated as you said they have money they're not a strain on the financial system mm -hmm. and again this is up to 60 percent of the people that are coming in right now yeah. and i don't think people know that there were v so that to me was fascinating absolutely there were vps in in organization back home i turned a vp role down before i started my consulting firm back in nigeria so i own right. my consulting firm before i moved over to canada so i don't think people realize First of all, the mindset challenge that people have to go through when you were a director or a VP or you had, you know, people reporting to you from multiple regions or your company is in five, six different countries. So you mm -hmm. are like the regional president or, or vice president over several uh, territories and you're doing multiple projects. And then you come here and you're bringing all that wealth of experience and it's not being recognized or acknowledged. It does something to your ego. It shocks you. In fact, uh, I read a comment last week. Somebody posted it online. And I, it's probably an exaggerated joke. But she said, I thought with the way Canada was sold to me, I thought, I'll be, uh, I thought uh, companies would be waiting for me at the airport with job opportunities. Mm. And, you, you know, I, I, I laughed at one point, but then I understood what the person was really talking about. There's this mindset right. of, okay, I'm coming here. You told me I'm the best of the best. 
You yes. took me through all these rigorous exams. You checked my blood sample. You checked my health. I had to go right. through criminal uh, history and background check and all these things just to ascertain that I am the best of the best and I am fit enough to come into your country. And then I come into your country and then suddenly I'm not good enough for the company. Or then I hear something called, yeah. do you have Canadian experience? Right. Someone told me. So let me go ahead. Yeah. Let me stop here because this is where this is where I find it. There's three phases mm -hmm. that you articulated very well in your book. You talk about this and I will guarantee that. And I've been in business for a number of years. I, I wasn't aware of this. So the three phases we can talk about them are surviving, mm -hmm. developing and thriving. Absolutely. And you've kind of articulated cases whereby it's sort of cut off. But I think this is the, the, the guts of it. They make we get the promise they've qualified to come to Canada. Mm -hmm. They've checked all the boxes, and as you said, they sh we should have a red carpet waiting for them. But it seems to me that the numbers are they, they fall into these categories and they move through process. Some people quicker, some less. But the three categories: first of all, is the, is the surviving category. What is what does that look like, and what does that feel like, and and how long? I, I know there's no definitive answer, but. How long can that take, and what are the what are the pitfalls in that in that so in that the, the individual comes in, they apply for hundreds of jobs, they don't get a call back. Um, their savings is depleted because they're paying rent somewhere, or they're living with a friend and they've overstayed their welcome. They anticipated right. in two months I'll find a place, but then they cannot find a place because landlords will not give you a place unless you actually have a job. And because you're new in the country, you do not have credit history. So because you don't have credit history, landlords are not comfortable giving you a place as well um, because they don't see a credit history. Because you don't have right. credit history, it's hard to qualify for a credit card. Because you don't have credit history, you have to buy a car with cash. So that, that savings that you brought in is depleting very quickly because you're probably paying cash for a lot of things just to survive. Okay? Right. Landlords are like, oh, I don't understand this person's accent. And this name, I don't know where it's coming from. So if you don't have a co-signer, I am not comfortable, you know, giving you a place to stay. So you don't have a job. I, I, are there exceptions? Or are there exceptions where a sponsor, say a professional services organization, not everyone can fall into this bucket. There have to be some soft landings where... You know, whether you talked about PwC or KPMG, I would assume there has to be some level of sponsorship or are they all, do they do, and I hate to say it, does everyone feel this and go experience this surviving stage? I would say every single person that I have spoken to, spoken with, they go through this surviving stage. The, stage, the, the easiest way that people have gone, uh, have found a way around it, which I think my wife and I did, and we didn't plan it. It just happened by accident. Right. Was um, she came first? Yeah, uh, and the idea was basically, you know, my, my wife was uh, three, four months pregnant at that point, and we were already thinking about moving out of the country. Uh, so she came first. She spent time looking for a job. I was home sending money across, right. you know, and yeah. so we were apart for a full year. I think I, I saw yes. my son twice in uh, the first year and it was always um uh we only had <laughs> she came to nigeria for two weeks at one point i came to canada for two three weeks uh when um our first son was uh, uh was born 
So that made it easier for us, that transition. I've heard some people do that as well, where one person comes ahead, that person goes through the tough period while someone else back home is sending money to help them through that process. But many times, more often than not, most families come together. They all come together. My, my, my grandparents came separately. Mm-hmm. My, my grandfather and my father came um, nine months earlier than the balance of the family. So you're right. They came. Never thought of it that mm-hmm. way. But never. it's that, that softer landing. Get, your, get grounded. Create your process. How long can this phase last? I well, for me, it was a year. Uh, it was a year. Okay. Um, the, the survival phase overall um, could be anywhere between five months to almost two, three years for many people. And there are wow. still people that still struggle. Um, I've, I've, I've also learned and noticed, and this is a conversation, by the way, there is no studies around some of these things. And that's why we need mm-hmm. studies so that, uh, and the studies should not be done by organizations that have an interest you know, and what's going on, because then the results will be skewed in favor of what the government probably wants to see and what the people would like to see as well. It has to be a third party that has, you know, they're paid, they're an outside consultant that does this and just share the information. What is that process or period like for people? What are some of those challenges that people face? But from what I've seen in the conversation that I have with people, it ranges. You can be anywhere from five months almost to three years and there are people even after three years because their accents are thicker or because right. they're still learning a lot of um, uh, a lot of different aspects of uh, Canada or they're learning to speak English. That process goes much longer for them in comparison to someone like me or that spoke English all their life. It made it easy. But even for me, <laughs> that spoke English all my life. It was still a one-year challenge, you know. So I'm fascinated by this, and I and I think you're bang on. It's that bottom line: immigration is our future. Let's just absolutely stick to the yeah. Let's take the data and the learnings that you've shared and start elevating them, shining some light on it, and, and make it you know make it make it bigger. So we talked about the surviving phase, mm-hmm. and to be honest, it sounds horrific. Oh, it is horrific. To a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. But let's let's paint a picture. So this podcast is all called Deconstructed Intentionally, and it's not demolition. It's breaking everything down, deconstructing it, understanding it better, and building it back up. Like that's that's the intentionality of what we're doing. So the second phase, as we're building this better now, is the developing phase. So we talked about the surviving. It sounds horrific. Everyone goes through it at a different place. I'm I'm assuming some have a smooth transition by the sounds of it. And I, you know, we brought in a Syrian family, and that whole surviving was just so difficult. Mm-hmm. There was a language barrier. We only talked through Google Translate five years ago and it still happened. Mm-hmm. So we moved from surviving now into developing, tell developing phase. Tell me a little bit about that phase and what people experience. And again, if, if possible, some generalities on duration. Developing, you're now into the system. So you finally get a job. Um, you finally are able to get a credit card. For many of us, we don't even realize the benefit of having credit history and credit card and all those little things and how that can make a world of difference. Um, so right. that individual is finally able to access a credit card. Um, that individual is now in their, uh, perhaps in their industry or working outside of their industry, but they're trying to work their way back to uh, the level they were at 
you know, in their previous country. What do I mean by that? If there were a VP sales or director or whatever it is in an architectural firm, they're here now, they're probably entry level. They're starting all over and you're trying to work your way back up. One of the toughest things about working your way back up is checking your ego because there's nothing worse than you've been a leader for a long time, but then now you're at the bottom. And then the things right. that the company is dealing with, you dealt with it for 10 years or for five years or whatever. You've seen it before in a different context. But now you have to try to assimilate into the system. You have to balance not being intimidated and not offending uh, people, not be behaving like you know it all, looking to listen through that process. Also, during the development phase, people are going back to school. They're trying to get a Canadian certification. Uh, so this this blew my mind. I read this and I read it over again. So so this is this is amazing. So they have a degree in whatever mm -hmm. you know. As we said, it's the best and the brightest. They've had to prove it. Um, then they come here, and for some reason, there's a perception that you need. A Canadian education. I have a um, equivalent. Yep, I have a friend who has a master's uh, from the U.S. in his field, and was a senior manager back in his country. Moves over to Canada, cannot find a job for a year. Totally depressed. Finally, decides to go back to school out of frustration to get a diploma. Was very angry through the process because it's like. I have a master's. I'm going right. back to level one diploma. But the shocking thing, Jeff, the minute the diploma was finished, calls started to pour in. So we present ourselves as this worldly community. You're basically calling bullshit on that. <laughs> it is total BS what we do. When I finally got a job the first thing that we did was we went to the bank together twenty thousand dollar loan because we wrote down all the job by the way we wrote down all the job requirements for my role equivalent of my role here in canada and what i noticed with the equivalent like everything ended up costing me about fifteen thousand or so in terms of certifications going back to school taking this because that was the requirement just to be able to apply for the job it didn't mean i necessarily got the job just to be able to qualify to get into you know the opportunity now what's the difference people that go to school here or people that have lived here most of their lives there is a likelihood your company would probably help you pay for some of those, you know, you're going for this training or you're doing your disk analysis training or some sort of program, uh, maybe a 10% or 20%, we'll cover that while you, when we come, we have to cover that by ourselves. So we are, right. we are, um, what's the word I'm looking for now? We are competing with people that have lived here for most of their lives that have had that, you know, um, opportunities and we are coming. And now our international certifications, even though we saved money to, to take them, we flew out mm -hmm. of the country to a Dubai, to Australia, to the UK, to the US to go take these exams and the certifications and these MBAs. No, Canada wants you to take their own because to, uh, to people that you I hear from, it's like, oh, we just want to make sure you understand the Canadian standards. 
Oh, and so this happens in every in every field, every, almost every field I know of. There is some sort of internal, and, and I actually just tell immigrants: just don't even think about it. Just do it. Just get it done. Um, while we are all lobbying and trying to speak to the hearts and the minds of our organizations, you go do it because it could be the difference uh, between you being able to rise up to a director or a senior manager or a VP in an organization. Like you can qualify just based on your experience, but that could end up holding you back. Never allow that to hold you back because that's something you can control. So before we get to the last comment, which is utopia, that's the thriving piece. I, we, we regularly hear of people just bailing out on Canada. And I hear this regularly because they, you know, maybe they were stuck in that surviving phase or the developing phase didn't move along. Where, where do they drop off? Um, and where do they, like, they come here, they're, you know, they've been sold on Canada, it's wide open, there's all these opportunities, but first of all, they come here, they can't afford a house. That's a whole other discussion, I we're going to talk about that in another podcast. But where, where are they, where, is there any generalities on where people are dropping off and saying, whether they go back or just go somewhere else, is 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 it in these phases, the surviving, developing phases, where is, there are flight risks? Yeah, it is at, in between the surviving and the developing phase. I, I'll give an example. There's a friend of mine now who, by the way, started a fintech. He's the CEO. I sit on the board of his um, of his uh, fintech. Been recognized by Google. Um, Calgary named his fintech top twenty fintechs uh, in Canada right now. Um, you might want to bring it for your podcast as well. Uh, however, a few years ago, he walked into his boss's office and he said, I'm leaving the country. He said, I'm done here. I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. And the boss was, oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry to hear this. Um, is there anything that we can do to help you stay? Why are you leaving? Uh, exit interview type thing. And he shared, um, I can't find... African food. I can't find Nigerian food. I'm sick and tired of eating the food that you eat. It makes me sick. I'm homesick. Miss my family. Yeah. There's no one that looks like me around here. I'm done. And then the boss said, can you hang on one minute? Makes a call to another department. There is a Nigerian that works in that department, calls the person into the office. And then the person says, oh, there is an African store 30 minutes away over here. This was pre like you know, you can just Google African store and it just pops up and the stores know that they can right. do Google and SEO and whatnot. It's like, oh, there is an African store not far away from here. Takes the guy to the African store. This guy is blown away, so happy. He meets people that look like him, sound like him, their affinity that he could connect with. And when he shared that story with me, it made me realize this organization and our country was about to lose someone that is now top 20 in fintech. All of that simply because nobody ever said, how can I support you? How can I help you? How are things going in the company? What can we do better? And that individual was at, as handed in their resignation letter saying, I'm going back home. And what was the issue? Homesickness and food. And once that was resolved, productivity went way up. So it is shocking. So I, I love these. These stories are so relevant. And, and it's not theater. It's, you're not doing this 
for attention. Mm -hmm. You're basically bringing forward, and that's what this whole book is all about. Um, these stories are super relevant. And for every one you tell us, you probably have 20 more. And I think that that's the piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, thriving, obviously, it sounds like, what's another word for thriving? <laughs> thriving. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But what, what does that feel like? And then does that become... Uh, do they become a conduit then to say, okay, the first couple of phases were shitty, but it's all worth it now? Or is there still a little bit of resentment potentially on, on the journey that they've been through? In the thriving phase, people are doing well. You know, they've moved up to a good place. They're making good money. Um, they're now able to start investing. Um, they're now able to also give back. So for some people, there could be bitterness because uh, you went through a tough um, period of time to be able to get to the thriving phase. Uh, for some mm -hmm. other people, it's an opportunity to start giving back. It's an opportunity to start serving. When you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're looking at the self-actualization level at the top. You know, right. But here's what's interesting, Jeff. When recruiters are looking at resumes, they're looking at volunteer experience. They're looking at, as this person volunteered in different places, how does this person give back and all that? The immigrant over the past three, four years or, or whatever their timeline has been, moving up to the thriving phase, has been trying to survive, has been trying to just walk and move and get to start running again. So they've not had a chance to be able to do all those things. So here we are again, we're comparing this individual who has been trying to survive because the system is not set up necessarily to help them succeed that easily in comparison to someone else who has been in the system uh, all their lives and who has been volunteering. And through high school, you needed a number of hours to volunteer. And through college, you've been right. volunteering. And you're comparing, it's basically you're comparing apples to oranges at that point. You know, um, so on for, thriving phase is a great phase. But then I think what also happens to us is we feel we're so far behind. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm hitting 40. I don't have enough in my RSP and I got 25 years left, whereas someone else has been saving since 22 or whatever it is. Or, oh, my gosh, I need to buy my first home or I've not bought a home. Uh, I need to do that as soon as possible. Oh, by the way, family back home need my help, need my support. I still need to send money back yeah. home to be able to support them uh, while I'm trying to uh, continue to grow in this organization. And oh my gosh, I need. I also need to be careful. Don't be too intimidating. Don't be that person that people will be scared of and say, "Why do you think you know it all?" You know. So stay humble, stay focused, keep your head down, don't lose your job because it can take you back to the developing phase and you're starting right. all over right. again. So stay focused, keep your head down, stay humble and just do your thing. That's why, Jeff, when I went door knocking, uh, when I was running for council, when I met Caucasians and Canadians and you know people that have lived here all their lives, they would say, what do you have to offer us in Ward 5? When I met immigrants, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself out there? Why do you want to expose yourself? You know, because there is that constant fear or trauma or concern of don't put yourself out there because you think you're thriving. It could knock you all the way back. So keep your head down. Stay quiet. Stay with your group, you know, so that you can just keep managing your way through. Your voice and your narrative are so important. And I, I'm committing 
to continue to amplify this because, and I'm going to go the, the, the kind of a heavy question here, but immigration is required, period. We are built, we're you know, a nation built on immigrants and we will continue to as much as some people don't want it. The funny thing is the people that want to slow it down are descendants of immigrants. So the whole thing is messed up, right? So what are the consequences uh, of, of uh, I, I, without being too dire, but... I mean, if it just gets to the point that it's it's not a welcoming, it's not an engaging community, the consequences is for organizations trying to build teams and build talent. You know, th- th- there's some fatal flaws in this design and the consequences could, could be quite dire. Absolutely. Uh, we could have... Uh, for small business owners that probably have 10 employees or less, uh, when you retire, who takes over? Who can buy that company from you? Uh, you could lose those opportunities for our community. Think of the story I shared of that individual who has been recognized by Google because of a startup that has employees now. You know, what if that individual left? There's, um, uh, I don't know, I don't think many people realize this. The CEO of TD Bank, uh, his, his family uh, is an immigrant family uh, that came in mm-hmm. in the 70s. Um, there's so many opportunities and leaders and people that we will miss out on simply because we're not taking this thing too seriously. We could lose a lot of talent. We're losing doctors to other countries. And by the way, uh, we're in a health crisis. We need more doctors. We don't have enough family doctors. Uh, the, the, the weight and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be best friends with my family doctor because if I lose my family doctor to find another one is going to take forever. Uh, but we are losing family doctors because of some of these issues and concerns um, uh, that, that are happening. So I think it's important that every organization, small business, large business, we all come to the uh, drawing board and say, we need to either lobby better, we need to provide better programs, more effective programs that could help immigrants coming in. And that goes beyond partnerships and programs that just say, hey, we'll help you with your resume or, hey, we'll help you get it, find your first entry-level job. That's just a survival phase. Who helps you in the developing? Who helps you in the thriving? Who are the mentors? Who are the coaches? All of those areas, we need programs to help people through that because as we help the immigrants, they in turn are able to give back to their communities. They pay their taxes. They serve. They give back. They become such a part of the you know the, the you know the entire organization. Our mayor in Kitchener is an immigrant. Yes. Well, I, I would probably say if you look. Past 10 generations, all of us are immigrants at council. I'm an immigrant. Paul Singh is an immigrant. You know, like, look at all these individuals that are serving at this capacity simply because they were able to settle and say, hmm, how can I serve my community because my community has been good to me? And we need more and more people being uh, to be able to say that and do that. So your book is fantastic, first of all. Plug, where do we, where can we, I, I'm going to become a distributor. We're going to talk about this offline as it relates to, I think this is an important book to get in the hands of, you know, Grand Valley Construction Association mm-hmm. members. But until such time, where can we find your book? It is available on Amazon. You can go on Amazon.com. Uh, you can go on my website, iowo.com as well, uh, to be able to get a copy of your book. All you have to do is type in, uh, inclusive leadership, the immigrant view, or 
the qualities of an inclusive leader. Uh, either of the two, it will pop up and it has, just look for the really long name, you know, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's, this, this is important. So chapter nine of your book, it says, must be willing to hold important conversations. Hmm. And this is one of them. Is it cr- in crisis mode where, where you're the heat right now about um, housing and homelessness and crime, these are all important things. I believe this as, is equally as important. And blue sky here, practical, tactical to wrap this up here, you know, willing to have, you know, to hold important conversations. What are some, a few quick things that we can do aside from learn more? And I think everyone needs to learn more and understand the fact that, you know, again, they you just understand the immigration process is that 60% of people are not refugees and stop putting everyone in that bucket. That's number mm-hmm. one. But then willing to have important conversations. Who needs to be at that table and how can we accelerate those? At organizations, we need to sit back and say, okay, let's review our hiring processes. Let's review our policies. What part of our policies could be holding people back within the organization that we are not aware of? Not because we're racist, not because we're bad people, but just because we are not even aware of some of those things. And we should ask people about some of those things so that we can review some of those things and say, we need to improve, work on it, tweak it, get it better or whatever. So that's at an organization level. Small businesses, we need to start coming to the table. We need to start having conversations with our local colleges. These are some of the needs that we have in our small businesses. Can you ensure that the immigrants that are churning out or the students that are coming through your programs, where they're able to learn some of these critical things? I think many times we're all being too nice that we're not saying the things that need to be said. I tell my students, I, I teach at Conestoga, if you're running five minutes late, let me know you're running five minutes late. If you're running 15 minutes late, send a message. Not because it's part of the school requirements, but simply because you're learning those habits for the workforce so that you can learn what is expected. Nobody's going to tell you about it. You're just going to lose your job and not understand why you're not at those uh, levels. So we need to have those conversations. Our rural communities, our small towns are in dire need of a different set of immigrants that are separate from the ones that are necessarily coming in. They're probably looking more for more blue collared workforce in comparison to, you know, uh, the bigger uh, cities that are looking for white collar type workforce. We need to have conversations at the government level where it's not just, oh, we think this is what we need. It's more, what do you need at the local front, at the city level, so that we ensure that the types of people that we're bringing in have those types of qualities and skill sets? And if they don't have it, what are some of the transition programs that we need to put in place? So a lot of conversations need to take place. A lot of partnerships need to happen. Right now, what I see is, oh, this settlement agency only works with permanent residency. This settlement agencies only work with refugees. This settlement agencies only work with, uh, I don't even think I, I know of any that work with students, but there are so many different settlement agencies focused on one thing that reports numbers to government. And I'm like, we're working in silos here. This is a larger problem. Let's bring people together. What do our small businesses need? What do our large organizations need? What do our communities need? What do our rural towns need? What do all these needs, what are they? And then how can we, the immigrants are out there. 
how can we find the right ones that can add great value uh, to our organization, our community, our cities, our towns, and our country at large? Ayo Owadani, thank you. You're an author, you're an innovator, you're a city councilor, you're a coach, but more importantly, you are an educator. Um, today's discussion was incredibly informative and a little concerning. Um, you helped, helped us understand who the immigrant really is, and you talked to us about how we're, they're sold on the opportunities in Canada, but that's really when the challenges begin. And the phases of introduction and integration into the community are much more difficult than they appear. Um, this discussion is not over, it's just beginning. Thank you very much for joining us on Deconstructed. Thank you so much, man. This was fantastic. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Deconstructed, the podcast of the Grand Valley Construction Association. You can subscribe to Deconstructed in your favorite podcast app to get notified when it's live. If you want to learn more about the Grand Valley Construction Association or know someone we should have on the show, please contact me at jeff at gvca.org. 